You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 12th of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky returns to a Washington, D.C. now otherwise preoccupied. Do comparisons of the present with the Cold War help us all that much? And would you wear a Margaret Thatcher Christmas jumper? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Patricia Cohen and Vincent McAvenny will discuss the day's big stories and we will take a stroll around a Neapolitan Christmas. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, and I'm joined today by Vincent McAvenny, political journalist and Monocle radio regular, often indeed the presenter and or producer of this very programme, and by Patricia Cohen, global economics correspondent at The New York Times. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello there. Um, Patricia, I don't think we're over the statute of limitations re-Thanksgiving. I think I can still ask American people what they did for Thanksgiving. You, I believe, went to New York City. I did. I went to New York City so that I could have, you know, the real thing. Last year, I actually made Thanksgiving here and it, it had a lot of trouble getting a turkey. Uh I guess that much before Christmas. I I have been to Thanksgiving dinners held in London by Americans. They basically have just given up on the turkey. So I I did manage to get one last year, but I thought, well, this year I'm going to kind of go back to New York for the the authentic experience. And and how was it? Did you have the proper authentic Thanksgiving experience, as I understand it, which involves getting into an unholy row with some elderly relative about the merits of Donald Trump? Okay, so that part we did not have. <laughs> <laughs> did you get to see the parade? Is that another key part? Uh, that was on in the background at okay. television. But I, but I ha- actually... You didn't where, have a giant Spider-Man floating lived, by your window or anything. Well, I, I uh, lived in New York on the Upper West Side, and I would always go the night before where they blow up the balloons. And oh. that was always uh, our kind of ritual of going Wednesday night to see uh, Spider-Man being blown up. Well, there we are. Uh, Vincent, d- d- did you do anything for Thanksgiving? I, know, <laughs> I, I, not, I, no. I know it is not necessarily that big a thing on Jersey, but... No, did no. did not. Do. I mean, we did get a state named after us, but um, no, that, we don't, that, don't mark it at that, all. That's true, actually. Do, 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 do you often like point and laugh at Sark and Guernsey over that? Yes, often. <laughs> you know, always point and laugh at Guernsey. Absolutely backwards place. Don't ever go there. <laughs> well, we will start properly with the latest stop on the current America's tour of Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Having stopped off at the inauguration of President Javier Malay of Argentina in Buenos Aires, where he made his case to several Latin American heads of state, he is now in Washington, D.C., attempting to keep Ukraine's most important ally focused. The Republican Party, which was once a pretty solid bulwark of support for Europeans, attempting to keep Moscow's boot off their neck, is demonstrating worrisome sluggishness in approving a $60 billion tranche of new funding for Ukraine's defence. Patricia, interested first of all in his stopping off 
uh, at Javier Malay's inauguration. Uh, and he was at great pains to congratulate President Malay, I think even greater pains than are probably strictly obligatory. Does he perhaps see Malay as kind of a, a the populist he can befriend, the one he can get on side? I mean, I think Zelensky is very strategic and and political. And as you've mentioned, he's gone on several kind of world tours before. And and I basically think he's looking for any and all support he Mm. can get, particularly as the war, uh, you know, continues on. um, Other events, including the Mideast, are grabbing people's attention away from Ukraine. And you know, support, particularly in places like the United States, um, certainly not in the White House, but definitely in Congress, are waning. So I, I just think he's kind of looking for, for any friends he can find. Uh, we will come to the Washington angle shortly, but staying with the, the Buenos Aires leg of this, Vincent, there was a European angle to it. And I'm wondering how big you think a part of the appeal of going uh, was an opportunity to get all up in Viktor Orban's face. I think that was a big part of it. I think he wanted to go to connect with as many leaders as possible. Mm. Of course, in South America, there's not been much support for Ukraine. You know, there was the thought that maybe when Lula got in in Brazil, he might sort of shift the national position, but he's been pretty lukewarm on it. So the opportunity to network with those leaders and try and point out, hey, colonialism, that thing you're always all banging on at, it's going on right now in my country. Um, But yes, he had the opportunity, of course, with his application. We all remember Ursula von der Leyen going to Kiev, giving him in person the EU application form and said it would be a matter of, you know, months and not kind of, you know, the decades that other countries would get. Maybe it would be sorted in a year or two. Uh, and progress is kind of stalled. And the person that is going to be a big bugbear now for uh, President Zelensky is Putin fan Viktor Orban, who is the bad boy of the EU. He is someone who is not abiding by the rules which he signed, which his country signed up to when they joined the EU in many different areas. Uh, and now this person has the power to stop that application going through. Uh, and it was very clear, you know, you'd, you'd need a lip reader to sort of get what they were saying. It was filmed from quite far away. But uh, often, sometimes you can read more, I think, when you assess footage and actually have the sound off because you pay attention more closely to how someone looks the body language, the intensity of it. And it did look like uh, uh, that President Zelensky did really take that opportunity to go at Viktor Orban in terms of getting himself uh, into the European Union. Well, I I do wonder uh, if Zelensky may have said something, Patricia, along the lines of 1956 wasn't really all that long ago uh, to Viktor Orban. But, But on that subject... Looking at the United States, is it possible to explain how this issue has become a partisan bun fight? Because you would have thought, certainly going back to the Cold War, a comparison we will be making again later in the show, that it used to be the case that even if they agreed on nothing else, the one thing that the Republican Party and the Democratic Party would broadly agree on is that, yes, if there is a European country being menaced by Moscow, we should do what we reasonably can to help them. I mean, the thing is that the Republican Party that you're referring to in the past Mm. uh, that was in alignment on that thinking doesn't exist anymore. I thought you might say something like that. (laughs) I mean, this is Trump's Republican Party, even though not all of uh, the members of it are, are happy with that development, but it clearly is. Trump has clearly come out against the war. He is says that he could end it in 24 hours uh, if he wanted to, if, if he were elected, even before he was elected. Um, and 
the other thing is that this particular issue um, has also gotten all muddled up with other very, uh, very controversial issues in the United States, including uh, immigration from Mexico. This is the Republicans trying to tie the Ukraine funding to border security. Exactly. And so uh, it's it's kind of pushing together two issues that really actually have absolutely nothing to do with each other. But as a result, they're using it as political leverage. And Zelensky has had a very tough time on Capitol Hill so far today. And uh, I don't know that he made actually a lot of headway with Republicans. I was looking at some of the reports right before we came in. He's still there. But um, it's a huge contrast if you look at how he was received about a year ago, Mm. kind of standing ovation, asked to address Congress. And now when there's many there's many Republicans who are saying they're not going to approve that aid unless uh, it, it's tied to tied to money for the border uh, on Me- with Mexico. Hey, Vincent, just finally on this, this is something that President Zelensky, I think, has well understood from the off. And certainly it has been well understood by every Ukrainian I've spoken to over the last, well, nearly two years now that... People's attention spans are limited. Uh, People get distracted by other things. People get bored uh, by even a crisis of this magnitude. And I I have said before, I am old enough to remember people just basically zoning out of a four-year-long siege of a European capital city in the early to mid-90s. And obviously, since October the 7th, they have had events in the Middle East to contend with. Um, Do you get the sense that there is anything of that extraordinary impact that Zelensky was once able to make, whether on a a Zoom screen from his bunker or by turning up in person? Does his presence still carry any of the weight that it once did? This was always the thing that Ukrainians feared. And if you talk to them, they all say, you know, don't forget that the war didn't actually start in February 2022. It had been going on since 2014. And the world did somewhat forget uh, about that uh, in the east of the country. I think Zelensky knew that he had to get as much uh, support and weaponry and assistance and aid around the world as quickly as possible in the first year of that war and really sell this idea of a big spring counteroffensive and that was going to push back Russia uh, and then potentially after that there would then be Russia weakened and some kind of settlement done. That spring offensive, because Russia managed to harden the front so much uh, with its defences, it hasn't worked out. There hasn't been any major significant victories. And that is the problem that Zelensky is facing now, is that he's going back and saying the same thing, uh, that he needs it uh, for the uh, you know offensive to stop Russia. And many people are now tuning out. It doesn't help that members of the Republican Party still seem completely uh, to be, you know, softly Putin fans. You've got the likes of J.D. Vance, you know, relatively new senator, just saying that he thinks that uh, Ukraine just has to give some land to Russia. Russia doesn't need any more land. It's the largest country (laughs) in the world. Let's not forget that. Uh, And we will, you know, he is not... He's not going today with the same fanfare. He is really going with the begging bowl. And it seems at the moment it is not even to keep the advance. You know, it's not for the big new advance or something like that that he's promising. It's just to keep the rockets they need to keep their air defences going to stop the drones. So it is very difficult for him to fight for the attention. The fact it's been tied to the southern border and the Democrats in their defence have made concessions. They've pulled their provisions away for the dreamers, which are the children of people that have come across that, uh, you know, should be able to get US citizenships. They've backed away from that in order as a big concession to get the Republicans on board. But the Republicans are just looking at the election and thinking, you know, we want to 
we don't really care. You know, it's clear Trump isn't really a fan of Zelensky. He's not going to, you know, he's going to sell him down the river as soon as he gets in from the signals that he sent out. So Republicans aren't that minded to help this man out. Well, let's move along to a broadly similar concept. And whenever someone floats the idea that we are engaged in or are about to engage in a second Cold War, the temptation among those of us who remember the first one is to respond to the effect that chance would be a fine thing. Cold War One was a relatively straightforward proposition. Free world here, communist tyranny there, neither having all that much to do with each other outside Olympic Games and the odd proxy conflict, and we won. Gita Gopinath, Deputy Managing Director of the IMF, is the latest to float the Cold War II thesis, observing that the main superpower conflict, which is now the US versus China, is further complicated by polarisations between the wider West and the global South. Um, Patricia, first of all, do you buy this idea? Does this comparison really stand up? Uh, So I read Gita's speech, uh, Mm. and... I mean, anybody who's familiar with the Cold War, uh, (laughs) the first one, can see how different uh, the situation Mm. is now. Having said that, and and remembering that, you know, she's looking at in terms of an economic perspective, we can see how tensions between China and the United States, as well as what's happening in Europe, have definitely complicated trade and economic relations in a way we have not seen, at least since the fall of the Berlin Wall 30 years ago. And this sense of the world fragmenting, of countries pulling back a bit in terms of looking, you know, what's called friendshoring, locating supply chains among allies, perhaps, putting up, as the U.S. has done, sanctions, worried about security in terms of exchange of technology with China. Uh, so there, there is a dampening there. And what I would say, particularly covering the global economy as I do, what is the most striking development to me in the last year is this kind of collision between politics and economics in a way that we have not seen in a long time. Well, on that thought, Vincent, is there in fact an argument that the mistake that has been made by the West in particular over the last, let's say, 10, 20 years is that we haven't been thinking in a Cold War-y enough fashion? Because there was the idea of we will develop you know, this economic relationship that Patricia was referring to, referring to with China and Russia Uh, that will neutralise any threat because there won't be any profit in mutual antagonism. We can all work together, etc. And we have seen certainly how well that turned out where the relationship with Russia was concerned, the energy relationship with Europe. It doesn't require a great deal of imagination to see the enmeshment with China ending equally as badly. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's a couple of things that I think have really sparked this on. One was in the pandemic, we all saw how global supply chains became so snared and snagged and that there was a lot of national interest at play. Uh, and people sort of stopped in their own nations and wondered, well, why don't we make something like mm. PPE in this country? Why are we so dependent on that? There are practical concerns sure. now, having lived through that experience of maybe we are a little bit too dependent on this just-in-time delivery system. And, you know, we've seen today more rockets fired at ships in the Red Sea. Uh, the routes that these goods have to come from Asia, they are in some pretty tricky, tough, hot spots. And they've led to some very bad uh, and difficult foreign policy decisions over the decades when it comes to the Middle East uh, and Egypt. I think it does feel like there is a massive shift going on. And 
when it comes to the components that we require every bit of technology that we use, it does seem sensible for Western nations to decide to produce microchips in Arizona and, you know, the technology Taiwan is the powerhouse when it comes to this technology with what China is doing, with the way it's looking at what's happening in Ukraine as to what it might be able to get away with in the next couple of years. It seems sensible that those chips, which are used for all kinds of, you know, civilian technology, but also military technology as well, that we should have backups in the terms of production facilities. But it is inevitably, you know, whilst that is important for contingencies in all kinds of ways, it is inevitably going to divide the world slightly. Um, But at the same time, you can't forget that Whilst it did seem a great idea, having sort of this cheap labor in China and building all this bond, it did facilitate the theft of hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars worth of technology research from Western universities, from Western companies, uh, which was then exploited by China. Uh, and that is something that they haven't been in any way proactive in trying to curtail uh, or to try to shut down. And it's been a massive loss for industries here. Is there an argument, Patricia, that the the West, i.e. the victor in the Cold War, has been since then arguably, well, magnanimous to the point of being naive? No, I would not argue that. What number one, because I don't think that the U.S. is actually magnanimous. I think it acts very much like every country does in its own interest. Mm. Um, I, I think what what you need to remember is the kind of founding assumptions, some of which you referred to before, of of how the world was going to work after the Cold War. And and it, it followed this kind of triumphant, heady period where where this was a sense of we won. And His, history has ended. We will all be liberal democracies. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, a couple of those assumptions was, as you mentioned, that, that trade and economics exchanges would naturally lead uh, authoritarian countries towards democracy, which we saw wasn't true, um, both in China and in Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, and as well as that, uh, it was not necessarily going to bring prosperity uh, in in large portion to a lot of people. Yes, there were billions that were uh, picked up from poverty, particularly in China. But uh, at the same time, inequality has grown. And so um, I think, I guess the way I would reframe it is short-term interest versus long-term interest. And politicians and, and increasingly business leaders and corporations, which are, you know, judged by their earning reports quarterly, increasingly look for short-term results rather than long-term results. And I think there were a lot of um, warnings even even back when this kind of enormous industrial shift was going on from the United States to China without really looking at what the impact would be, particularly, let's say, on labor uh, in the United States and and kind of the erosion of a middle class uh, with, with the loss of all these jobs. Just a final thought on this one, Vincent. I don't know whether it makes the current situation more or less dangerous, but the thing I can remember uh, from being a Cold War kid was even as far away from theoretical front lines as Australia, the, the, the threat of 
actual nuclear apocalypse was taken quite seriously, especially, at least in my own experience, by over-earnest geography teachers. Whereas I think even despite uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the tensions that that occasioned, that idea is taken slightly less seriously than it used to be. I think people have generally internalised the idea, rightly or wrongly, that wouldn't actually happen. Nobody would do that. Does that make the current situation harder or more or, or easier to manage, though? I think it makes it... In, in different ways, it makes it easier and it makes it harder. I, I agree with you, having kind of not grown up, having been born at the end of the Cold War, so never been kind of conscious of that threat. I remember... You know, a teacher explaining it to me, you know, the fear of the bomb and, you know, going under the desk and all that kind of thing. And just thinking, how how is that? That's so mad. Um, and, and also, to be clear, wouldn't help. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Um, but I think, you know, I don't think anyone has taken it as a serious proposition until the invasion as in the last 18 months, both because of the invasion of Ukraine and the threats that Putin has made. But also, you know, the the Oppenheimer coming out this summer, many people stopping and thinking, you know, about what it was like to actually deploy a nuclear weapon, about what it would be like. I think that's the most detailed discussion I've known of it in my lifetime. It's definitely been in in the last 18 years. I think... 18 months. Sorry, 18 months. Sorry, (laughs) yes, yeah. In the last 18 months. Um, But I think it does... It just does seem so... When you think of nuclear weapons and the threats of them, you think of these real characters as in Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin. And part of it is that they've, in some ways, cried wolf about raining mm. down nuclear war for so long that it, you just sort of shrug it off and, and, and don't really worry about it. But I think there's also complacency in terms of what we think about how these systems operate. There have been, in recent years, some quite alarming reports about huge problems on Britain's permanent at-sea mm-hmm. nuclear deterrent, the Trident submarines, all coming to the ends of their life, uh, the, the technology to replace them, the new vessels, the development of those being slower than expected, uh, problems on board with personnel as well. Um, that we always sort of just assumed would be a very kind of stable, well-managed program. But it does seem like domestically, maybe some countries have taken their eye off the ball of of these programmes and how they're monitored. Well, let's move along. And one would think that, even only, if only, by listening to this programme, that what with one thing and another, the world furnishes plenty of actual outrages and injustices about which one may get righteously aggrieved. Nevertheless, voluble cohorts of people expend considerable energy and exercise considerable imagination in winding themselves up over things which, grand scheme of stuff, it is hard to regard as anything other than an exceedingly meagre hill of beans. High Street clothesmonger Zara has pulled an ad campaign after angry people on the internet yelled at it about a photo shoot in which models posed amid broken plasterboard with mannequins wrapped in plastic. Um, Patricia, a, a pet theory of mine, if you will indulge it, is that human outrage has expanded in order to fill fill the space available in which to expend it. Um, 30 years ago, pre-social media, nobody would have cared about this at all. And even if anybody did, maybe half a dozen people would have written letters to Zara, which somebody at Zara would have read and thrown in the bin. I mean, there's no question that this is a kind of phenomenon of social media and one uh, – I mean, this is, is so ridiculous, of course, but the, as, as Zara explained, the ad was completely conceived and, and finished before uh, there were any um, – conflict broke out. In, yeah, I, I should have been clearer. The, the problem here is that apparently people think this is Zara attempting to gloat about Gaza, which I'm pretty sure they're not. 
it, yeah, so it, it this was this was all completed before October seventh, mm. and and so it it clearly has has nothing to do with it. But nonetheless, there is this kind of hysterical megaphone of the the internet and social media, where um, everybody feels that uh, they should voice an opinion. Um, and voice it really loudly uh, without necessarily having to think about it first. Well, indeed. And the thing is, Vincent, this this does happen reasonably regularly. And, and the, the current war in the Middle East did occasion a similar flap a few weeks back when Marks and Spencer uh, ran an ad campaign uh, in which it depicted... Christmas hats thrown on a fire, which mm. upset some people or at least allowed some people to enjoy pretending to be upset about the thought of this blasphemous nature of Christmas hats being hurled into a fire. But other angry people noticed that the hats were red and green, as many Christmas decorations actually are, uh, and therefore proceeded on the assumption that this was, again, some sort of reference to Palestine when it very obviously wasn't. But the thing is, both Zara and Marks and Spencer have apologised. My mm-hmm. question is, why doesn't at least one company caught up in such a storm just tell the people complaining to shut up? <laughs> well, I mean, there are companies that do do that. The likes of Ryanair uh, and some others <laughs> have incredibly bolshy social media presences where they just tell people, you know, well, go shop somewhere else, go book somewhere else, go use some other service. They do and they kind of mock people that put in ridiculous complaints. These are, in both Marks and Spencer's case, and you know, particularly in Zara's case, you know, Zara is one of the biggest clothing manufacturers in the world. Mm-hmm. It's an absolutely massive multinational company. And in both cases, yes, they shot the creative months in advance of the release. If you've ever, you know, it, it, it's quite funny if you're um, ever in a TV studio and you're talking to the sort of makeup woman about what they're up to in July, they say, oh, I'm shooting a Christmas campaign <laughs> this week. You know, that is the lead time that they have on these things. But there is a point where they should maybe, I don't think in the Marks and Spencers, I don't think anything was wrong with what Marks and Spencer did at all. Um, but I think the Zara campaign, whilst it wasn't intended to in any way look, uh, you know, they weren't doing it two weeks ago and making you know let's make gaza chic it was very much a, maybe there should have been a little final check before it went out and thought does this still fit in the climate mm. you know that is a question for that company as to whether or not they should have maybe thought okay yes you did spend that money on this creative but in the grand scheme of things is it going to attract more trouble if it does go out now but some companies you know i, I do think that MS just responded to a, a, a very concocted you know i think there was a problem in that the ad wasn't a particularly good ad. I think a lot of people just found it a bit smug in a way. It was a bit like, oh, I've got all these great Christmas things, but I just... Because it involved sort of, you know, throwing board games in a fish tank and <laughs> throwing presents or whatever in a, in a garden strimmer and all this stuff. And it was a bit smug and weird. Um, so there was a bit of that backlash going on as well of people judging. I mean, I think part of the problem is... We've turned the Christmas tree. I don't think this is the same in America, but Christmas ads in Britain are such a. It's like a, a you know, it's like a playoff in the NFL. It's like you know, here comes Aldi and they've got three points on theirs, <laughs> and here comes John Lewis, and we put a lot into them. And I honestly think there hasn't been a good one in a couple of years now. Um, but in terms of in this instance, I mean, companies do need to be aware and have to game out and, and do better at testing these things with test audiences so that not to stop something going out, but to know maybe how to respond with a bit of nuance if a certain section of society 
does react in a certain way. But but the trouble is, Patricia, you, you can't game everything out. And there is another one for our consideration, which is that Next has pulled a Christmas jumper with a Pan Am logo on it. And I don't know why on earth a Pan Am logo goes on a Christmas jumper, but whatever, because people in Lockerbie signed a petition upset about it because it was shortly before Christmas, 1988, if memory serves, 35 years ago, that a Pan Am jumbo jet was blown out of the sky over Lockerbie, which is an obviously unimaginably horrifying event for that town to have lived through. And one obviously respects the grief and the trauma of the people who survived that. But nonetheless, this is still a reach, isn't it? Next next did not think, I know, let's all laugh at Lockerbie. Right. I mean, I guess that, that was would be my response to what you were saying before about gaming it out. I I think some of these things are just so outrageous and really inconceivable uh, that it's it's hard to kind of wrap your mind around every contingency that could come up. And as we say, so many of these are manufactured out of nothing. Uh, and um, so I, I think it's really hard to do that. I think we are in an age now, and we see it all the time, not just for Christmas adverts, but all the time where companies constantly find themselves on the defensive for this thing or that thing. I mean, there was a whole incident in a, a, a different context against Budweiser beer because mm-hmm. here they did an yeah, ad language, trying yeah. to show inclusion mm. and diversity and kind of embracing uh this and and it causes incredible backlash and has had a huge impact on their sales billions off their stock price as yeah, well yeah yeah and and so i think we're just you know in a way i can't believe i'm saying this but i but i honestly kind of feel bad sometimes for these <laughs> for these for these multi-million dollar multinationals no but uh that I mean, it's just it's a kind of no win situation Mm. on some of these things. You don't know where something's going to come out of. uh, And, you know, for every legitimate complaint about an offensive ad, there's probably 10,000, you know, bollocks ones. Well, roughly two weeks from right now, many listeners will find themselves confined with people with whose political views they are at odds. By way of peace offering, or if that way inclined, argument starter, it might be worth considering presenting a politically themed gift. Here in the UK, the Conservative Party is offering a Margaret Thatcher Christmas jumper. This appears to have sold out already. While in the US, which has a much more established tradition of partisan tat, the shop of the incumbent president re-election campaign offers such things as a coffee mug, a cup of joe, do you see, while his likeliest opponent next year is presently retailing such festive treats as Christmas tree baubles shaped like his own plane and Mar-a-Lago, $205 the pair. Uh, Vincent, first of all, would you wear, even on a bet, a Margaret Thatcher Christmas jumper? I would not wear a Margaret Thatcher Christmas jumper personally. Um, I did think it was really funny that you picked this story because in 2008 I was working at a summer camp in California and I happened to go to a Barack Obama rally and I happened to buy a t-shirt there and they took my email address and to this day, every (laughs) single day, I still get emails from the Democrats. This was at 21 past midnight this morning, Joe Biden, update your winter wardrobe. I've tried everything to block these emails. They've Hillary sent them, and Joe <laughs> sent them, and this is the options. Uh, dark hoodies with dark crewnecks with the dark Brandon meme on them, a dark roast mug. I mean, they really, abs- you know, and this is this is like two to three times a day they send this sort of push through for merch. Um, it is such a big thing in the States, and I've covered elections, and you do see Americans, you know, 
it, you might see in Britain the odd Labour poster in a window or Conservative mm. rosette, but you don't see people like with bumper stickers or merch or backpacks the way that Americans really get into the merch side of things. It is a bit novel, uh, but it is amazing. I know I've, co- I've gone to Conservative Party conferences for work purposes for over a decade, uh, and the shop, it's always the same each year. There'll be a tiny amount of merch for whoever the Prime Minister is of the day, but there's always a lot of Maggie merch, and it always sells out by the end of the conference. See, I, I, I do have have quite the collection, Patricia, a reflection of me enjoying acquiring souvenirs from some of the places I've reported from and the frankly defective senses of humour of many of my friends. So I do own a Make America a Great Again baseball cap. I also own a Hugo Chavez baseball cap. And actually, now that I think of it, a Hezbollah baseball cap, I don't really wear any of them in public. I'm not sure which one I'd be more embarrassed by off the top of my head. Um, Have you ever been this way inclined? Do you own any T-shirts or badges or caps or bumper stickers? Or this just in, Donald Trump retailing segments of the suit in which he was photographed for his mugshot? I'm not sure if a price has been named yet. Um, Does any of this tempt you? Well, well, Trump was always the the master genius of marketing himself and his name, uh, which goes way before... um, before he became president and and kind of selling selling something that uh, turned out to be valueless. But uh, in terms of myself, no. <laughs> Partly is because, as you know, particularly at, at the New York Times, where I've worked for, you know, 25 years, we have very strict rules. And, and so only my closest friends would actually, if I did have any merch, would, would be able to see it because so I you, wouldn't be wearing you, it. You wouldn't wear your MAGA cap into the office then? <laughs> Although a Maggie t-shirt, you know, could could be kind of funny because uh, I, I don't think it has the same resonance but, in but the just, US as it does but here. But just to follow that up with you, Patricia, as the resident American at this table and, and further on Vincent's point, he, he's right. There is no culture anywhere else I've ever been in the world like the American one of wanting to advertise your party political loyalty on bumper stickers or T-shirts. I don't think I've ever seen in all the years I've lived in this country anybody with a Labour Party or Conservative Party bumper sticker. I'm sure they exist, but they're extremely unusual. Whereas in the United States, you see this a lot. Do we have basically you people to blame for the fact that so much of the rest of the democratic world now regards its politics like they do sports fandom, like we're the good guys, they're the bad guys, every Everything we do is fine. Everything they do is terrible. Uh, yeah, I think we should blame it all on America. OK, good, <laughs> good. I think, I, think, I think we're perfectly happy to do that. Um, are there any political souvenirs or merch you have or would wear? Did you get much wear out of the Obama T-shirt, for example? I mean, back in the day, it was O with a apostrophe... Um, apostrophe which was a shamrock barmer and it was irish for obama so you know it was it was a it was a great t-shirt back in the day I mean, uh, but no i like you I, you know when i go to big little events i do like to like collect those little novelty silly souvenirs or bobbleheads or whatever it is and you know i've got a a sign from um I think the Obama inauguration that I kept at the time and stuff like that. So I do have little bits and pieces, but it's not a personal thing. It's more out of interest. Yeah, I I, I, miss political buttons. You know, you don't see those anymore. That's from going back to the presidential elections. I like those collections. The the, the best ever political button, and I don't know how official it was, but I think this is thinking back to 1964, which, just to be clear, I don't personally remember, but I have read about this would be Lyndon Johnson versus Barry Goldwater. And Goldwater's campaign slogan was, of course, in your heart, he's no, you know he's right. And the Johnson campaign answered with little buttons which read, in your guts, you know he's nuts. 
Um, <clears throat> on, on that thought, uh, Patricia Cohen and Vincent McAvaney, thank you both for joining us. And finally, on today's show, Monocle's Isabella Jewell takes us for a walk around Naples at Christmas time. And it's a city which holds on to some rather special festive traditions. Christmas tends to conjure images of snow-dusted rooftops, dark nights and big winter coats. But in Naples, the picture is rather different. While the southern Italian city doesn't quite have the same climate as more naturally Christmassy places like Finland or Germany, Neapolitans grip the festival with both hands. In the winding alleys of the historical centre, pizzerias and ice cream shops adorn themselves with over-the-top tinsel and baubles. And the usual smiling accordion players swap their summer repertoire, mostly Bella Ciao, for some more festive classics. Sun-bleached seafront hotels bring out the evergreen decorations, miniature Christmas trees on balconies and ivy wrapped in red ribbon. It's an odd but charming addition to the otherwise thoroughly Mediterranean backdrop. In recent years, December has become another high season for Naples when it comes to tourists. Perhaps it's the more manageable temperature and the desire of Northern Europeans to soak up just a little more sun before being plunged into the depths of January. The streets are packed with tall groups and locals buying beautifully wrapped boxes of seasonal pastries from the city's bakeries, which resemble temples to sugar. Rococo Napoletani, lightly spiced cookies with candy fruits and struffoli, indulgent piles of deep-fried dough covered in honey, are stars of the Neapolitan Christmas culinary canon. It's hard work braving the crowds and heaving those platters of pastries across town, so it's important to take a moment's rest and enjoy an aperitivo. This isn't a Christmas tradition in Naples per se, but to me nothing feels more festive than snuggling under a blanket at an al fresco table for two with a glass of Prosecco and some salty snacks. Perhaps in Naples, Christmas can be every day. Food is, of course, the most important part of Christmas, and this coastal city shuns the American turkey for a celebration of frutti di mare. But that's not the only point of divergence from the sort of Christmas we tend to see celebrated on screen. For Italians, the main meal of Christmas takes place on the 24th. As such, you better be prepared for a scrum if you head down to the Porta Nolana fish market on the 23rd of December. In the shadow of the city's Aragonese walls, there are large tanks of live eels wherever you look. Bacala, salted cod and clams are also traditional elements of a Neapolitan Christmas Eve meal. But the real festive gem of Naples can be found deep in the historic centre, in Quartiere San Gregorio. There, a narrow street called Via di San Gregorio Armeno is lit up by hundreds of traditional Neapolitan nativity sets, called presepi. This part of the city has been home to the craft for hundreds of years, and it feels like a time capsule. Still today, artisans create presepi in the 18th century Baroque style. They are elaborate mini-buildings made of cork illuminated from the inside with small figurines, 
representing different elements of the Holy Family and society at large. Many of the characters move, either powered by water or electricity. Miniature women hang out their laundry, farmers feed their animals and chefs pull pizzas in and out of the oven. Even today, a Christmas in this city is not complete without the family gathering to dust off and arrange their very own presepe. So despite the imported tinsel and Christmas trees of American films, at its heart, Naples retains its very own distinct Christmas traditions. And something tells me that eels and nativity sets won't be making way for turkey and fake snow anytime soon. For Monocle in Naples, I'm Isabella Jewell. Thank you, Isabella. And that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Patricia Cohen and Vincent McAvenny. Today's show was produced by Isabella Jewell and researched by Neoma Akwe. Our sound engineer was Tamsin Howard. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Listening.